0: If you're excited to be in God's house, make some noise. Man, if your faith isn't stirred after that time in worship, you need to check your pulse. I'm not sure what's wrong, but man, God is moving. I'm excited to be a part of what he is doing in this part of the world, in this part of Western New York. If you're new with us, my name is Pete, and I have the distinct honor and privilege of serving as the lead pastor. And I know Pastor Lauren already came up out of that high energy worship set and said, you know, maybe you don't like how loud it is, but you know, Psalm 118, 15 says, shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. And so I am grateful for the victory that God has given us and the joy that that brings when we realize all that Jesus has done for us. Uh, As you heard Pastor Lawrence say, so we are in week number seven of a series that was originally intended to be three weeks. We were going to do one week on the Great Commandment, one week on the Great Commission, and one week on the Great Requirement. And once we hit the Great Requirement, we were like, whoa, hold on a sec. There is absolutely no way we could cover everything that is communicated in this one verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 in one week. And so we decided to kind of slow down and unpack this a little bit. And, you know, we have spent some time looking at the three elements that are communicated through that verse. And so for those of you who have not been here, the great requirement scholars are referring to what God said in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, when it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Lord requires three things of us. Number one, to act justly. Number two, and to love mercy. Number three, and to walk humbly with our God. We've already covered the first part. We spent two weeks talking about what it means to act justly. That is referring to our actions. Today I'm going to talk about loving mercy, the second part. That's referring to our affection. Next week we will talk about walking humbly with our God, which is about our attitude. Our actions, our affections our attitude, and we have to recognize today that all three of these things are intertwined and related to one another. In order to act justly, we have to love mercy, and we can't do either if we're not walking humbly with our God. But if we're going to learn how to love mercy, we have to understand what mercy is. And so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the word for mercy here is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. You have to, it's an H E S E D, but you have to pronounce it like it's K-H, like you're hawking up a loogie. So everybody say that with me, like Hesed. Got some work. Hopefully you didn't spit on the back of your neighbor's head. Hesed. It means goodness, kindness, or faithfulness. It occurs 261 times in the Old Testament alone. And they use the translator uses different words at different times when this word Hesed appears in scripture. Sometimes they use the word kindness, sometimes it's mercy, sometimes it's loving kindness, sometimes it's loyal love or faithful love. And it's this, it's hard to wrap up in one word. And uh, the King James Version alone uses 10 different words in different times when Hesed appears in the original language. And in the case of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the NIV translates it to love mercy. The CSB translates it to love faithfulness. The ESV translates it to love kindness. And it's hard to translate into any one language because it combines several different ideas. This, the idea of love, of generosity, and of enduring commitment kind of all wrapped up into one word. Chesed describes loyal commitment to another person that flows out of deep, Personal love and care for that person. This is the word that God used to describe his own character and nature when he he met with Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments for the second time. Because God gave him the Ten Commandments one time. Moses came down the mountain and saw all the people worshiping a golden calf. And he got angry and and smashed the tablets. And so Moses had to go back up the mountain. And God gave him the commandments and scribed them in stone tablets a second time. And God said this to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. He says, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, abounding in faithful love and truth. God delights to show faithful love to his people. That's who he is. A few weeks ago, I shared with you the verse in Psalm 89, verse 14, which says, righteousness and justice, mishpat, are the foundation of God's throne. But then the very next part of it says, faithful love, chesed is the word there, and truth go before you. So just as justice and mercy are essential ingredients to God's character and nature, according to Micah 6:8. God requires that his people, that we not only actively pursue justice, but that we also show faithful love to our fellow man. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, justice and mercy are so united that they ought to be intertwined with one another or mingled with one another. We should practice justice mercifully, and we should act mercifully justly. This requires that we be loyal in our love to God, just as he has been loyal to us. Only when we recognize the mercy that he has given us are we able to extend and show mercy to others. God's faithfulness to you and me flows out of his love for us. And then from a grateful heart for what he's done for us, we show faithful love to him. And one of the ways we demonstrate that is by loving the people in our lives around us. That reminds me of when Jesus answered somebody who came to him and questioned him and said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of all? And of course, we already covered this in the first week of the series, but Jesus responds by saying the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. But then he says in the next breath, the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. You see, one of the ways we prove that we love God with everything we have is by loving others as ourselves, This is the idea of faithful love, of kindness, of goodness extended to the people around us. Act justly and love mercy. And we have to understand that loving mercy should not be confused with having mercy. Loving mercy is different than simply having mercy. We shouldn't perform acts of kindness merely out of a sense of compulsion or compliance. But rather, our expression of love and mercy to others should be motivated by love and concern for them. And this is perfectly seen in the life of Jesus. And so we're going to be hanging out in John chapter 8 today. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there with me. And as you do, I want you to consider a question. Or consider this idea. You hear Christians, and and especially preachers, a lot of times talk and use these words, grace and mercy. Mercy and grace, God's grace and mercy, and almost like they're interchangeable. But we need to recognize today that grace and mercy are not the same. Grace and mercy are very different from each other. Let me explain the difference. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to use a very simple definition. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve, it is unearned or unmerited favor getting something that you don't deserve. That's grace. Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you do deserve. Do you see the difference? Let me, let me use uh, an example that most of us might be able to relate to. How many of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket before? Oh, come on. Those of you that didn't raise your hand are liars. Liars go to hell. Just kidding. Sorry. Talking about mercy. Mercy. Those of you that were honest and raised your hand and said that you've gotten a speeding ticket before, probably recall, let me ask you to recall the last time that you got pulled over, police officer comes up to your car, and before he asks for your license and registration, what's the first question he normally asks? Do you know why I pulled you over, or do you know how fast you were going? And that's the point at which most of us lie, right? (laughs) No, I have no idea. I was going the flow of traffic. Either that or what some of you do is you just start bawling and crying on the spot. <laughs> I almost got myself in, the, in, myself in trouble in the first service by saying a joke there that I will refrain from because some of y'all like to turn on the, the waterworks when the police officer comes up to your car to try to elicit a response of mercy. Can we please just stop doing that? But after they ask for, you know, your license and registration, they go back to their vehicle and, you know, they they do what they do in their car, run, run your name, your plate, all that stuff. And if you went over the speed limit, it is a limit and it is a law, what do you deserve? You deserve a ticket, right? And you deserve to have to pay the fine that's associated with speeding and breaking the law. That is what you deserve. Occasionally... Whether, you know, the officer is in a good mood that day or whatever the reason might be. Maybe he's already met his quota of speeding tickets for the month. Occasionally, he will come back to your car, hand you your license and registration and say, I'm going to let you off with a warning this time. That's mercy. (laughs) Juju loves it when that happens. That's mercy. You deserve the ticket. You deserve to have to go to court and pay the ticket. But he gave you mercy. You weren't given what you did deserve. That's mercy. Grace would be something very different. Grace would you actually be being handed the ticket and the officer saying, hold on, pulling out his wallet and handing you 250 bucks and saying, here's the money to pay for the ticket. Being given something that you don't deserve. Do you see the difference? Grace and mercy. Here's the question do you love it? Mercy, not speeding. (laughs) A lot of us love speeding. (laughs) In The first service I said, do you love it? And somebody said, speeding? Yeah. (laughs) Do you love mercy? Do you love people not getting what they deserve? Hold on. Here's the kicker from you. When someone treats you poorly, do you love to not treat them poorly in response? When it's within your power or right to bring harm or punishment to somebody who's wronged you, do you love the opportunity to respond instead with grace and compassion and forgiveness? While we'd all like to think of ourselves as merciful, hopefully we're all honest enough with ourselves to recognize that this is not necessarily a trait that comes naturally. You know, when Hollywood studios need a film that produces a quick buck, makes some revenue, they usually look for a good revenge story. They know that people will flock to a movie that's about a guy, an average mild-mannered guy who's pushed to the edge to seek his own justice because the system didn't work. We love that sense of vent. Like we live in a culture that that idolizes and is obsessed with retaliation and vengeance. But just like in so many other ways, that might be the culture we live in. But kingdom culture is countercultural. And God requires that we be a people who not only show mercy, but love looking beyond what someone deserves so that they can experience what can only be had through kindness and mercy and compassion. Do you love mercy? I'll tell you what I love. I love mercy for me. Grace and mercy are really wonderful concepts when it's being directed towards us. It's a whole other story when we're expected to give grace and mercy to others. Isn't that true? How many of you have ever noticed that? And notice Micah 6.8 doesn't say, act justly and live mercifully. It doesn't say that. It implies that if you love it, you will live mercifully. But he starts with the heart first. Do you love mercy? I love myself not getting what I deserve when it comes to punishment. And you know what? If I'm honest, I think sometimes I think other people deserve judgment and I deserve mercy. Some of you know that recently If you follow me or or my wife on social media, about seven weeks ago, both of our vehicles were stolen out of our driveway in the same night. My wife's van, my SUV, we woke up one Saturday morning and they were gone. So we filed a complaint with the police, you know, filed a claim with our insurance company. One of our vehicles has since been recovered and it's at the shop getting repaired the other vehicle was never recovered. The insurance company totaled it out, and I'm looking for a new vehicle right now. But a couple of weeks after it happened, my wife were, and I were just talking at the in the kitchen, and my wife, being the super spiritual and kind-hearted, loving person that she is, said, can we just, I just feel like we need to pray for the people that stole our car. And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> being the strong spiritual leader in my home, I gladly agreed to pray for the thieves that stole our vehicles, and she's praying, God, I just pray that they would fall under conviction, Lord, that they would have an opportunity to see your goodness and your grace, and Lord, I, and literally, as she's praying, I lift up my head, and I'm like, and she says amen, and I'm just staring at her, and she's like, what would you say to them if, if they came to our house right now? She goes, I would want to tell them about the love of Jesus. I'm like, I would want to show them the right hand of fellowship and freaking knock them out. Like, I'm, sorry, like, I'm human, I'm in work in process. But listen, it's humbling for me to stand up here today and admit to you that there are a lot of times where I want other people to get justice and get what they deserve for all that they've done wrong. But when it comes to me and the things I've done wrong, I want mercy. And I need you to understand that as your pastor, I'm never up here preaching at you. I always approach preparation when it comes to preaching from the standpoint of self-mortification. I'm like, God, kill anything in me that is trying to do this for the praise and the applause of men. And help me to let this pierce my heart first. And in preparing this message, it, it, it dawned on me just how much work the Lord still has to do in my heart when it comes to loving mercy. And if you, like me, can relate with that sentiment of wanting and enjoying grace and mercy for yourself, but wanting justice and judgment for others, then I want to invite you to go on a journey with me this morning at an encounter that Jesus had with a woman in John chapter 8, where he somehow does both. He acts justly and he loves mercy at the same time, all because he walked humbly with our God. Let's look at what it says, John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, in the law of Moses, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? That you were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I would really love to know what he wrote in the dirt. For millennia, scholars, theologians, commentators have speculated and hypothesized over what Jesus might have been drawing or writing in the dirt. But you know where I've landed? It doesn't tell us, and we don't know. Any suggestion would simply be speculation. And so we go on. Verse 7. So as he's drawing in the dirt with his finger, they kept questioning him. What do you say? He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. Then neither do I condemn you, he declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that this encounter you had with this woman was preserved for us in Scripture. And I thank you that your word is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray right now that it would pierce our hearts. Lord, that it would expose and judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And it would convict us and make us more like you. As we are confronted with our own shortcomings. As we are confronted with our own humanness and tendencies. And we see where we fall short. God, I pray that you would not only help us to be a people that show mercy... But that way we would become a people who love mercy. That God, that you would even give us the desire to love mercy. So I invite you, Holy Spirit, now to help me communicate your word. And I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and a heart to receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the situation. We have this woman brought by the teachers of the law to Jesus. And if you notice, it says twice in verses three and four, not that she was accused, but that she was caught in the very act of adultery. So they're not asking Jesus whether he thinks she's guilty or not because she was caught in the act. But in verse five, they ask him about the, the penalty. They say in the law of Moses, it's, it tells us that we're supposed to stone such women. What do you say, Jesus. See, they knew that Jesus knew what Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 said. Leviticus twenty ten says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Interesting side note, if they were caught in the act, why did they only bring the woman to Jesus and not the man? This is another point for another sermon sometime. See, according to the Mosaic law, adultery was a crime against God's holiness and law that was punishable by execution. And so in John chapter 8, they're bringing a woman who is caught in the act so they can trap Jesus. Why do they want to trap Jesus? Well, because they don't like Jesus. Jesus is a threat to their influence. He's a threat to their established religion and their perceived way of how things are supposed to go. And they, they know that Jesus was this guy who was all about grace and, and compassion and loving people and giving people what they don't deserve and not giving people what they do deserve. And they likely also knew that he said in the Sermon on the Mount, he was, he was concerned about upholding the law. He said that not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law until the whole law has been fully fulfilled. So they knew that somehow he loved mercy and he knew justice. He knew both. And they knew by bringing her to him that he would be trapped. Here's why. Because if he chooses to act justly and give the woman what the law said she deserved, he'd be trampling on the woman. But if he chooses to show mercy, he tramples on the law. And therein lies the trap. And so what will Jesus do? Verse 6 tells us. He stoops down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, again, we don't, we don't know what he said, but I just, I really like the visual of this. I love the fact that Jesus, the, the son of God who put on human flesh... Stoops down, kneels down in the dirt and begins to write in the dirt. Not distancing himself from the mess, but actually getting right in the middle of it. Just like Jesus wants to write his story in and through the mess of your life. He, I just love the visual of that. That he gets right down in it. And writes in the dirt. Then verse 7. As he's writing in the dirt, they keep pestering him with questions. What do you say, Jesus? So he straightens up and says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. One sentence. Then he stoops back down and writes on the ground again. So he's on the ground, and notice that he never says that a stone shouldn't be thrown, does he? No, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. He never denies that there needs to be punishment. See, forgiveness or giving mercy requires that the pain and penalty for sin is somehow satisfied or absorbed. So what happens next? Verse nine, at this, after he said this, those who heard it began to walk away. One at a time with the oldest ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Notice he says, whoever is innocent or without sin, be the one to declare her guilty and execute retributive justice. And what happens? They all leave until only he is left standing there. Only he was without sin. And only he was the one that could have thrown a stone at her. He's the only one in that crowd who could have actually thrown a stone in the direction of someone who, based on the Mosaic law, deserved it. So he's still standing there. So before I move on, can I just ask you a question? Where do you see yourself in this story? Who do you most identify with? Maybe you can relate with feeling like the woman might have felt in the center of a circle with a whole bunch of self-righteous people casting judgmental stares at you. Maybe that's all you've ever felt. Maybe even now, sitting in church, you feel like you're surrounded by a whole bunch of righteous people and they're just looking at you with judgmental eyes. Maybe in some of your relationships, you feel like people have cast judgmental stares at your parenting style, at your past behavior at the activities or hobbies you choose to engage in, casting stones of judgmental stares at, at every area of your life, at any area of your life. Maybe you're the woman. Or maybe if you're honest with yourself, you feel a little bit more comfortable in the shoes of somebody who was standing on the outside of that circle because it's a little bit easier to look at somebody else's mess than to think about your own. I feel better about what I deserve or don't deserve when I'm focused on what he deserves and what she deserves. Because what they did, you know, what they did was really bad, and I'm not as bad as them. And so let me just let me just focus on your sin. This is one of the hardest things for us to see in our own lives when we're judgmental towards others. But I believe this story can, can become a mirror if we'll let it, where we actually look at ourselves and say, yes, it is easier for me to focus on other people's sin and what they deserve and ignore the fact that I'm a sinner as well. I feel a whole lot better about myself when I'm focused on what other people have done and what they deserve than on focusing on myself. And see, here's the problem with rocks, you guys. If we think about rocks as just a visual for judgment, rocks don't actually hit sin, they hit people. And when we're casting, here's the problem with our judgment when we're casting judgment at other people for their sin, it doesn't actually stop them from sinning, it just stops them from coming to church. It turns them off from Christians who seem hypocritical and judgmental. Potentially turns them off from the gospel. Scripture says it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance and change, not our judgments. So I ask you, have you ever felt like the woman being judged, and you know what? Maybe you wouldn't even blame people for judging you because you know better than anybody how messed up your life is and how far short of the standard your life measures up knowing what God expects of you. Or maybe you'd be honest enough with yourself like me to see yourself and the people standing on the outside of that circle, focusing on other people's sin, casting judgment at them while ignoring your own sin. So as the story continues, verse 10, they all walk away. Jesus straightens up and asks the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And I can imagine her standing there before Jesus, head hung low in shame, unable to even look up and look at him. And she says, no one, sir. And then Jesus' beautiful response, then neither do I condemn you? Go now and leave your life of sin. This is wild. Jesus is saying, yes, you are guilty, and I, the one who could condemn you, don't. How could Jesus say that? He could say that because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus could say, I don't condemn you because he knew that he would soon be condemned for her. Rocks should be thrown. The wages of sin is death, but they wouldn't be thrown at her. They would be thrown at the one who could throw them, but who would take them instead. Spears should be thrown, but they would land in Jesus' side. A crown of thorns should come down, but they would come down on the one who was least deserving. The one who could judge sin chooses to become sin and receive or absorb the punishment that sin requires. Satisfying God's justice for sin so that we could receive his mercy instead. That is the beauty of the gospel. At the cross, Jesus combines justice and mercy so perfectly because he humbly and obediently walked with God all the way to the cross. Jesus is not some kind of compromise. He's not like halfway between strong and tender. Somehow he's perfectly both. He is perfectly just and holy And at the same time, he is perfectly merciful. Justice and mercy don't fight in Jesus. They unite perfectly in Jesus. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you 2 Corinthians 5.21 that illustrates this so beautifully. When Paul writes that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, the only person who has ever lived a sinless life to be sin for us. The justice due us was taken out on Jesus on the cross. That's mercy. You weren't given what you deserve. Jesus took it instead. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's grace. You were given something that you don't deserve. Jesus' perfect record and righteousness was credited to you because he took your sin in your place. That's mercy. Do you see it? What does righteousness mean? That we might become the righteousness of God? Righteousness means right standing or being declared right and just before a perfect and holy God. Can we, for a moment, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? The justice that was due us withheld its mercy Taken out on Jesus. That's justice. Why? Because he walked humbly with God. The only one who didn't need to humble himself because he was God. Humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That is our Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Man, I love the gospel. So what's the takeaway? Notice in the last verse, yes, Jesus gives mercy, but then he challenges those who've received it to grow in it. Look at what he says. Neither do I condemn you. There's the mercy. He withholds condemnation because he took it on the cross. Then he says, go now and leave your life of sin. In other words, change. Become a person who is changed by the mercy you receive. Become a person who begins to love mercy. Notice the order. Jesus did not say, go and leave your life of sin, and then I won't condemn you. No. He said, I do not condemn you first, and then in light of that radical, beautiful gift of grace and mercy, go and live changed. Do you see that? A genuine encounter with God's grace and mercy will always result in a changed life that wants to sin less. Because you know the price that he paid, so that you wouldn't have to receive the punishment that was due. But do you see the order? Because the order is so significant. If you think, "Well, I've got to change so that God will accept me. I've got to change before I come to church," then you're going to try to find the power to change within yourself. You're going to look at the law and the standards, and you're going to say, "Man, I, I got to do better. I got to be better. I got to do more." Can I just tell you, your willpower isn't that strong. You don't have the power to change yourself. It's not go and change and then I don't condemn you. Jesus said, I do not condemn you first. That's mercy. Now go and live changed. Be a person who begins to love mercy and show mercy to others because of the gift that you have been given. So what do we do? How how do we go And live changed? How do we walk away from sin? How do we become people who love mercy? Here's how we go to the cross where the power to change is not found in ourselves. And isn't that good news? See, the cross is where we find the power to change because the power that we begin to rely on is not our own. The power to be forgiven the power to receive mercy so that we can begin to love it and give it to others comes when we walk humbly with our God who did justice and loved mercy for us. I want to close with a story from a popular musical. If you're a musical fan, you'll know Les Miserables. Anybody? Les Mis, Victor Hugo's musical. I think it was back in the 1800s, if I'm not mistaken. It was written tells the story of a man named, see if I can pronounce this right, Jean Valjean. When I told my wife that I wanted to use this story to close the message, she goes, make sure you say his name right. It's not Jean Valjean, it's Jean Valjean. She's got French in her heritage and so she wanted to make sure that I said it properly. So forgive me if that is not correct, but Jean Valjean, is a man who spends 19 years in prison doing hard labor for the horrific crime of stealing bread to feed his starving family. After his release, he's now a criminal and he's not welcome anywhere. And so he's taken in by a local church. And knowing that God's law requires charity and love and generosity, hospitality, the head of that church, a guy named Bishop Muriel, tells Valjean, though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. In other words, whatever we have is yours. Our house is your house. Like, this is, this is us. God's given us this stuff to share. But hardened by 19 years of labor for a crime that shouldn't have been punished the way it was, in a desperate act, Deljean takes off in the middle of the night stealing all of the church's silverware and is caught the next morning by the police. And when the police question him about it, he tells the authorities that the church gave it to him And so they take him back to the church to question the bishop to corroborate his story and so bishop muriel is in a difficult position he has shown the criminal kindness and has been repaid with the theft of one of the church's only valuable possessions he's well within his rights to tell the authorities what actually happened and nobody would have questioned whether he did the right thing but instead of turning him in the bishop grabs some silver candlesticks and shoved them in Jean Valjean's arms and said, you forgot the candlesticks. He tells the authorities, yes, I gave him the silverware and Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. He shows him mercy. And so after the police leave, the bishop tells Valjean, he says, forget not. Never forget that you have promised me to use the silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition and I give it to God. See, Bishop Muriel acted mercifully when it seemed obvious that Valjean should be punished even though his act of compassion could have led to other people being victimized. There was no promise or guarantee that by showing compassion and mercy that he wouldn't leave and just go do the same thing to somebody else. And so to see this from God's perspective, The bishop had to sacrifice his own pride, his own sense of right and wrong and and righteous indignation because Valjean had already responded to his kindness by stealing what wasn't his. But this act of mercy is kind of like, if you think about it, kind of like being victimized twice. He's robbed once and now he's gonna get away without having to pay for it. See, mercy isn't just about being nice or kind to someone, true mercy always has an element of sacrifice to it. It's a kindness extended to others at personal cost to us when it's within our power to do otherwise. It's having the ability to see the bigger picture and what God wants for that person, even when we don't feel like they deserve it. Instead of being focused on the treatment and the respect that we feel like we deserve. See, God wants us to love mercy because it's the only way that we will become people who naturally respond with goodness and grace to others. We won't love mercy until we receive it. And we've got to spend time reflecting on and remembering the gift that we were given, what was withheld from us, even though we deserved the punishment for our sin. So if we want to be people who love mercy, let me give you five things that we have to remember quickly in closing. Number one, we have to remember how much mercy we require from God. Remember how much mercy we require from God. The Bible is story after story after story after story of God's mercy triumphing over judgment. Despite repeated rebellion and sin and turning our backs on God and worshiping idols, God continually responds with grace grace and mercy and patience. And in the most shocking display of mercy of all time, Christ, the only sinless one, steps into our place to receive the punishment for our sin. To love mercy, we've gotta remember the mercy that we require from God, that's most important. Number two, we also need to remember the mercy we require from others. It's easy for us to think about what other people deserve and forget about the fact that, listen, you're not perfect. You've done things, you've said things that have hurt other people that that have left them with a choice to forgive you and that may not have been an easy choice for them. So recognize that you have been in a position where you needed mercy from others and when you remember that, it becomes easier to love mercy and be prepared to show kindness and mercy and compassion to others. Number three, remember that mercy can do what judgment can't. James writes in his epistle that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is more powerful than judgment. When Jean Valjean experienced the bishop's mercy, it was a game changer for him. He he goes from being this hardened criminal who's stealing things to being completely transformed and changed to somebody whose life is defined by selflessness and compassion. Mercy can do what judgment can't. If he had experienced justice and was sent back to prison, it would have only resulted in him becoming more hardened and more embittered. But he was given mercy and he changed. Mercy changes people. Number four, remember Jesus' call to follow his example. Many of you know that Jesus said that if anyone wants to be my disciple, he's got to take up his cross and deny himself, right? I think a lot of times what we need to deny ourselves of is the right to get even. Deny ourselves that sense of feeling justified and holding a grudge or being bitter or angry towards people who've wronged us. How can we hold on to unforgiveness when God has forgiven us of all of our sin? Recognize that you will never need to forgive someone more than God has forgiven you. Which is why Jesus said in, in Luke six thirty six, be merciful just as your father is merciful. So remember Jesus' call to follow his example and to be merciful to others because you've been shown mercy. And then the last thing you need to remember to be someone who can love mercy is remember the cost of not loving mercy. There's a very sobering verse in James chapter 2, verse 13, that says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's a sobering, scary verse. That's what's riding on us as people of God, learning how to love mercy because if we don't show mercy if we don't learn how to love it judgment without mercy will be shown to us and I don't know about you but I don't ever want to be in a position where judgment without mercy is shown me listen although it's not always limited to just forgiveness for wrongs that others have committed forgiveness is a huge part huge component of mercy and by showing kindness and compassion and faithful love to others and wanting the best for them, even when they don't deserve it, we are becoming lovers of mercy. And 2,500 years after Micah wrote that God requires us to love mercy, the apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, dear friends, let us love one another. Let us show faithful love to one another. Hesed. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, you might insert mercy here, whoever does not love mercy, whoever does not show kindness and faithful love to others, does not know God because God is love. If you have a difficult time loving mercy and showing compassion to others, it is a sign that you have not recognized the magnitude of the gift of God's mercy that has been shown you. We can't love mercy if we haven't received it. Let me pray for us today. Lord, when we look into the mirror of your word, it's a little jarring and unsettling when we see all the ways we fall short. And I'll just speak for myself when I say, Lord, I I need your mercy. I need your spirit to continue molding me and shaping me into somebody that that wants to love mercy for others in the same way that I want it for myself. So God, I know that unforgiveness can be a poison that just eats us alive and we might feel justified in holding on to that offense because of how heinous whatever offense they committed against us might seem. But Lord, help us to see that no matter what anybody has ever done to us, however horrific that may be, however much pain it caused you, Lord, it, does, it's, it doesn't even come close to comparing to the sin that we have committed that put you on the cross. So Lord, help us to be a people who not only actively pursue justice and show compassion to the vulnerable people of our population, but Lord, that we would also love mercy and love to have opportunities to tell other people about the mercy that's available in you and that we would extend mercy to other people who don't deserve it because we didn't deserve it either. We can only do this, God, as we walk humbly with you. So as we continue praying with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you've been somebody who has lived your life under the assumption that as long as you are a good person and as long as you, you know, don't hurt people and your good works outweigh your bad works, then you'll, you'll be okay. God will accept you. I hope you recognize today that as scripture says, our righteousness, our attempts to do everything that God requires us is as filthy rags. We can never be good enough. We can never do enough good works. If we could, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. But he did because he wanted to restore you to a relationship with your father. And to do that, he had to take on the penalty of sin on himself, the innocent in place of the guilty. And only when you place your faith in him can you be declared just and righteous before a perfect and holy God. And if you're ready to take that step today, would you boldly shoot your hand up and say, That's me. I need His grace. I need His mercy. Anybody across this place, just raise your hand up. If you're watching online, you click the link in the comment section. I see that hand all the way in the back. God bless you. Is there anybody else that says, Yes, that's me? I want to know that my sins are forgiven. I want to enter into a relationship with Jesus. I need His mercy. Church, I don't want anybody praying alone, so will you join those who are responding to the Holy Spirit's prompting and say, Heavenly Father, thanks for sending Jesus to die for me, a sinner. I confess that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And I choose right now to place my trust in you, Jesus, the Son of God, who died for me and rose again, And because you now live, I have hope that I can live forever with you. So I repent and turn away from my old life. And from this day forward, I choose to follow you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength and power to follow you and serve you and act justly and love mercy. As I walk humbly with you, Jesus, I give you my life. Now, God, I thank you for that prayer. I thank you for those hearts who were postured and and submitted and surrendered to you. God, I pray that you would seal this moment by your Holy Spirit. May they understand and know that everything changes from this point forward. God, give them the power through your Holy Spirit to continue taking next steps to be a person who grows in their understanding of what it means to follow you step by step. And God, I thank you that you are molding us and shaping us into an army of victorious sons and daughters who know who we are and whose we are, and we represent and reflect your character and nature to a dying world around us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. And amen church can we put our hands together and welcome those who have joined the family of god it's what it's all about before i dismiss you if i could just take a quick second to address those of you that said yes to a relationship with jesus can i be the first one to say congratulations on the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life and welcome to the family of god you're our brother you're our sister and the lord and Uh, Now that you're in a family, we want you to know that you're surrounded by a bunch of people that want to help you take next steps. The truth is that decision you just made was just one step on a journey that will last you the rest of your life. And so we wanna help you take some next steps. And so if you wouldn't mind doing me a favor, if you said that prayer and you surrendered your life to Jesus, in the seat back pockets in front of you is a stack of cards. The green one says, I've decided across the top. Would you grab that and on the back side just check the box that indicates the decision you just made. And on your way out, if you would please hand that to one of our Next Step team members out in the welcome area. In the foyer we would love to give you a bible and some other resources that will explain a little bit more about what you just experienced and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and encourage you to take some next steps And if I could encourage you to consider one of those next steps being to sign up for baptisms that are happening on July 9th as we surround you and celebrate the decision that you've made as you publicly declare that you have given your life to Jesus and you belong to him. We look forward to celebrating that moment with you. Now as our Dream Team members get into position to serve you with excellence, on your way out. I always like to remind you that if there is anything that you are carrying that is causing you grief or a burden that you want to share with somebody and ask somebody to agree with you in prayer, Our prayer team is always available after service in the prayer room in the back right corner of the auditorium. They would consider it an honor to go before the Father and lift up your need to Him and ask Him to move in your situation. So don't leave today if there is something that you need or want prayer for. We would love to do that. We've got one more week of this series. We will finally finish our three-week series on week number eight. Next week as we talk about what it means to walk humbly with our God. I love you guys. I hope you have a great week. God bless. We'll see you next Sunday.